0: Good morning, and Happy New Year. Let me be the first to welcome anybody here who is a guest. Um, Welcome to Four Oaks Church. My name is Dave. I'm the pastor of preaching here at Four Oaks, and my hope for all of us in this coming year, my hope for myself in this coming year, is that we would grow even closer to Jesus and that this local church would help us all in some important way to accomplish that end. So it's good to be together here on the first Sunday of 2016. Uh, For our guests, this past September, we launched a new series out of the book of 2 Corinthians. The title of the series is Weak is Strong. Weak is Strong. And uh, 2 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote, to a varied troubled church in the city of Corinth, and this is a book that's, that is really filled with surprises. I mean, it takes themes like leadership and suffering and comfort and weakness, and it just gets you thinking about them in completely different ways, in ways that are entirely unexpected, so that you can hardly believe the conclusions that are drawn by Paul. And uh, nowhere is that clearer, nowhere is that better illustrated than when we come to the very next passage that we're studying, beginning this morning, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. So you can open up your Bibles there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Title of this morning's message is, Diagnosing Gospel Motivation. Diagnosing Gospel Motivation motivation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to read beginning in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 17. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also To your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, new things have come. Let's pray together. Lord, as we stand on the threshold of an entirely new year, filled with hope and filled with promise, Lord, we ask you to stir our faith for how we might glorify you in this coming year. And Lord, we ask you specifically to use this series, to use this message that you might work in us to motivate us for your glory and through your gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. On February 15th of 1921, in an operating room in the state of New York, A doctor performed a simple surgical procedure. The surgeon's name was Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane. And Dr. Kane had this rather unconventional, some might even suggest it was an audacious belief. And that is that he felt that general anesthesia, that's where they sedate you completely, they knock you out so that you're not awake at all during the surgery that general anesthesia was, was hazardous, that he believed that local anesthesia, where they just kind of numb one part of the body so they can operate, that local anesthesia was far better for the patient and far safer for the patient. But Dr. Kane was unable to find a volunteer anywhere to test this theory, person after person after person that he asked. They were just too squeamish at the idea of being awake while you were being cut into But he eventually found a volunteer, and the surgery was scheduled, and in the early morning of February fifteenth, the operation began. It was a simple appendectomy. The, The anesthesia was applied, the incision was made, pinned back the various layers of skin and tissue. Dr. Kane found the organ and he made the necessary cuts, removing the organ, and when it all went on without incident or complication. The patient experienced only minor discomfort, but nothing abnormal, nothing of concern. The incision was then sutured, the vital signs checked, the operation complete. Perfect. Perfect. Dr. Kane had proven. His theory. In fact, the event was regarded as one of the most medically incredible moments in the history of medicine. And by the way, that wasn't because his theory was correct, and it wasn't because the field of anesthesia would now be forever changed, but it was because in this operation, the doctor and the patient were the same individual. Dr. Kane had operated on himself. Now, that takes do-it-yourself to a whole new level. <laughs> and yes, this is the guy that you have to blame next time you are wide awake listening to the sounds of surgery being performed on your body. This is the guy. But as we stand on the threshold of an entirely new year, I want to invite you to do the same thing that Dr. Kane did. I want to invite you to operate on yourself. And if you're wondering how we're going to do that, I want to suggest to you that we can use the surgical tools that are provided for us in this very passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 17. Now just so we don't get ahead of ourselves, let's remember the context because it's been a while since we've, we've familiarized ourselves with it. So let's remember that this is a period in the life of Paul where he is under attack. He's under attack by opponents that are disputing both the quality and the legitimacy of his ministry. In fact, earlier in chapter 2, he's already dealt with a leader in the Corinthian church who attempted a kind of coup. He launched a slander campaign, and he tried to overthrow Paul's leadership within the church. But now there's folks from outside of the church that are seeking to influence the church. They're opponents, they're infiltrators, they're false teachers. Some of them refer to themselves as super apostles. And they're seeking to depose Paul of his leadership and appoint themselves in Paul's place. And regardless of whether it was the guy from inside the church or the guys from the outside of the church, the attack all seems very similar. It's all really the same. They're all saying Paul is a phony. Just look at his appearance. Just listen to the way he talks. Just check out his, his letters of commendation. He has none. Their strategy was nothing more than character assassination. And so Paul comes to a place in his life where he's being forced to defend not only his ministry, but his motivation Why does he do the things that he does? And this is where we see Paul's brilliance. Because Paul never defends himself where he doesn't also educate his listeners on what's really going on from God's perspective. He's kind of like a brilliant defense attorney helping the jury understand what's really important in the evidence they are looking at. And it's here that Paul talks about the very nature of what is godly motivation, of what is truly gospel motivation. What does it look like? And that's how we arrive at this particular passage, because here in this passage, Paul outlines how to discern true gospel motivation. Motivation Again, this is his defense. This is what he's portraying and presenting in front of the Corinthians. He wants them to understand. He wants to educate them on how do you discern what is truly gospel motivation. And so I want to summarize this for you in three questions, three diagnostic questions that, we'll, that we can ask to help us to diagnose gospel motivation. Motivation. There's an upward question, an inward question, and an outward question. Upward, inward, outward. First question, this is the upward one. First question is Who do I seek to please when I speak? Who do I seek to please when I speak? Now, again, the context is there is an accusation that has been laid upon Paul that is false. The accusation is this. This guy, this dude, this teacher seeks to please men when he speaks. In fact, he, he, speaks to, he seeks to, to speak for the praise of people. That's what he cares the most about. And so he responds in verse 11 by saying, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others others. Now, the passage starts with that word, therefore. Therefore simply means consequently, as a result of. In other words, as a result of what I have just said, this is what follows. So, you know, we're, we're immediately point, put forward with the question, what is it that stokes Paul's fear of the Lord? What is it that influences how he speaks, how he persuades others? And so let's just drop into the prior verse in verse 10 and see what he said. He said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul was saying to the Corinthians, I want all men to understand my motivation. I want all men to understand what truly influences all that I say. And by the way, it's not your approval. It's not to appease the false teachers. It's not for the applause of my peers. It's not even that, that, that I can advance my cause by manipulating people to agree with me. Paul says it doesn't have anything to do with that. It's that I am aware of this. I am aware that I have an appointment. I have an appearance that I need to make. In fact, it's on my calendar for right after my funeral. And because of that appointment, I fear God. And it's because of that appointment that I persuade you. See, that word persuade there, it's often assumed to be like an evangelistic word, that this is what motivates Paul to evangelize. But in the context of 2 Corinthians, that's not what it's saying. This is about Paul talking to the Corinthians. This is about Paul persuading the Corinthians. What is behind how Paul is persuading the Corinthians to his point? He's saying, listen, if there's any question about what motivates me to speak, let me hit it on the head right now. Let me hit it head on. He said, I speak because I fear God. See, for Paul, the gospel didn't spring believers from judgment. Think about this. In Pauline theology, the gospel doesn't spring believers from judgment. It simply changes the basis upon which they're judged. It moves us from a judgment of sin to a judgment of rewards. And that's how Paul describes it in verse 10, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul is saying, here's my defense. If you want to know why and who I'm trying to please, if you want to know why I'm honest, if you want to know why I'm sincere, if you want to know why I'm direct and pointed in what I say, if you want to know why I'm trying to persuade you in the way that I am, it is because I believe that I'm going to stand in front of God. It's the person that I'm ultimately accountable to, the person that I'm going to be talking to, that influences how I talk today. You know, I remember traveling years ago to, to South Africa. Uh, I was in seminary at the time. It was the early 90s, and it was the end of apartheid. It was a very exciting time in South Africa, very volatile time in South Africa. The, the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission had just been formed, and they were beginning to hear cases so I informed my seminary professor, who happened to be an African, that I was going South African. He said, oh, really? He said, listen, when, I, when you get there, I want you to contact a very dear friend of mine. He took out a piece of paper, and he wrote a name on the piece of paper, and then he wrote a phone number on the piece of paper, and he folded it up, and he handed it to me. He said, you can open that later. He said, I want you to contact my friend. And, uh, and so later on, I, as I, when I was at my house, I opened the piece of paper, and on it was written Bishop Desmond Tutu, who was, if that name is not familiar to you, he was a, a, a global peace leader from South Africa. He was also the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And so I went to South Africa with the phone number of Bishop Desmond Tutu. And I remember thinking about this before I called him and thinking about what I was going to say. And I'm thinking, you know, this is, this is nuts. I'm going to talk to Bishop Desmond Tutu. What do I say to Bishop Desmond Tutu? How do I avoid sounding like an idiot to Bishop Desmond Tutu? And so I called him. And fortunately, he never picked up which is how most of my stories end when it comes to really important people. They never pick up. But I will never forget the kind of fear, was it? The kind of anticipation that illustrated a point for me. And the point was that the more important the person is, the more you think about what you will say. The more important the person, the more you're going to think about what you want to say. The higher the position, the more prepared you want to be. See, what Paul's saying here is Corinthians, you have to understand that I speak today with that day in view. And I've got to be honest with you, you know, studying this passage over the past couple weeks for me has been very convicting. Because I've realized honestly how how little I think about that day in comparison to Paul. How distracted I live from that day in comparison to Paul. How about you? What about you? How how much does that day influence the way you talk at work? Or what you say when you get angry with somebody else? Or how you respond when your boss jerks you around in some way? Or when you're tempted to gossip about somebody else at the office or in the neighborhood. Paul said something interesting about, to the Galatians. He said, quote, in verse, chapter 1, verse 10, he said, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, I can't serve Christ and try to please man. Because when I do that, people become too big, and God becomes too small. People are big, God is small, there's, something to, there's a problem with that. Are people too big? for you If you find yourself just too preoccupied with what, how others think about you or or you have a strong craving for approval that has you constantly talking about yourself or or you live for some reason with this intense fear of being rejected or there are times when you're in situations where you should be speaking up because you have convictions, but you are not speaking up. You may be told by other people, you may be told by the world, you may be told by the culture that the source of that fear is something outside of your own soul. There are many people available that will inform you and seek to influence you that the source of that fear is really the way you were parented or weren't parented, the, a common phobia that exists within the, the world today, perhaps even a brain disorder. But but in Scripture, it has a name, and that name is the fear of man. It's when we fear man more than we fear God. It's when our active heart craves the approval of man more than it does the approval of God, when we live more for this earth than that day. And it's a very common sin, And God loves us too much to allow us to rush into 2016 completely unaware of that as a category. And so Paul is helping us to remember that this is something that can motivate us wrongly. And he's reminding the Corinthians that this is what motivates him. When he speaks, he speaks for an audience of one. When he speaks, he's speaking to please God. What about you? So that's the first motivation, the upward question. Who do I seek to please when I speak? Second question, the inward question. Do you value the heart more than appearance? Do you value the heart more than appearance? So remember, context. Okay, the false teachers are on the stage at Corinth and they are parading their eloquence and their intellect and their learning. And they've got these letters of commendation from prestigious people that they circulate around to justify their existence. And basically, their world is propped up by outward. Appearance. In fact, the Greek word there for appearance that appears in the text, the Greek word literally means face. It means face. In other words, they are seeking to gain a following through their gifts, through their rhetoric, through their boasting, through their face rather than their heart. So this is where Paul strikes a contrast between face and heart, face and heart. He says in 11b, But what we are is known to God And I hope it is known also to your conscience because we are not commending ourselves to you again but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, face, and not about what is in the heart. See, what we are is known to you, Paul says. We're not commending ourselves, he says. We're giving you a way to defend me. We're giving you why you should defend me. And he says, because it's about the heart, not about the face. The face is the wrong thing to value. He goes on in verse 13, and he basically says, I know it sounds like I'm out of my mind, but your conscience knows that this is true. See, Paul lived with them for 18 months. They knew him. They knew his way of life. They knew what motivated him. They had seen him from the inside out, and so he's appealing to their conscience. But Paul understood something about the Corinthians in the same way that God understands something about all of us, and that is that man looks on the outer man. Yes, God looks at the heart, but man looks the on the outer man. I mean you probably heard that phrase before. You know where that phrase comes from comes from? That phrase comes from the Old Testament, it comes from the book of First Samuel, where God has rejected Saul as the king. And so God sends Samuel to appoint another king. He sends him to Jesse's house, father of David, and Jesse has a number of sons. And so David's not even there, but Jesse calls out his sons, and the first son stands up. And the first son is Eliab, and this guy is a stunning specimen. And Samuel sees him because he's tall and because he's handsome and he's got charisma. And Samuel thinks, surely this guy's going to be king. I mean, he's going to be king or he's going to be the next American Idol winner. I mean, he's got something going on here that's very attractive. Because Eliab is kind of walking down the runway, and, and, he, and, and Samuel sees it. But, 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 but here's the irony, is that 30 minutes prior to that, Samuel was grieving the loss of Saul, a king that was described as tall and handsome and full of charisma. And now Samuel is looking for the next king by the same Criteria. And so God interrupts Samuel's thinking. He interrupts his thought because Samuel is thinking in the way of the flesh, according to verse 16, the way of flesh. And God says to him, You are looking on the outer man. Man looks on the outer man, but God looks at the heart. And part of learning how to discern is becoming aware that as people, we have this knee jerk reaction. To just look on the outer man. You know who understands this very well? Advertisers. Oh, advertisers get this completely. That's why they pander to the outer man. That's why they convince us that their product will upgrade the outer man. That's why attractive people are most often the most popular people. You rarely find an unattractive celebrity. Lest they are a comedian or a singer. But they are attractive. Why? Because man looks on the outer man. And Paul knows the Corinthians are vulnerable to thinking in the same way. So, so he, he knows this local church. Remember, this is a local church that doesn't have any leaders. As far as we know, there's no leaders that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. And yet these people have become convinced that they are spiritual. They are the pneumaticoi, the spiritual ones. And yet they tolerate immorality in their midst. They tolerate the abuse of gifts. There is disorder all over the place because they value face over heart. And probably the greatest danger to valuing face over heart is that Well, Paul describes it in verse 16 in the following way. We regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, the greatest danger of valuing face over heart is that we begin to value according to the flesh. We become flesh addicts. That's what the Corinthians were. They were flesh addicts. You know, a flesh addict is revealed in one of two ways. It's revealed in what we boast in or how we diagnose our problems, what we boast in or how we diagnose our problems. Let me talk for a minute about what we boast in. So a flesh addict boasts in outward appearance. That's what Paul describes in verse 12. He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, those were the false teachers, rather than what is in the heart. A flesh addict boasts in outward appearance. This is the guy or the woman that manages to drop the names in conversation or just signal their education or certain awards that they may have received. See, the boasting of a flesh addict may be subtle, at least to them, but the intent is always clear. They want to be the biggest people in the room, larger than God. And, and it's not just like they're, they're completely bent on moving away from God. In fact, sometimes a flesh addict can be a very churchy person. Remember, the Corinthians perceived themselves to be the spiritual ones because they had gifts, because they had this prayer life, because they, they talked incessantly at fellowship group of all the things that God was showing them each and every week. But the intent of it was not to glorify God. The intent of it was that they might grow large in the eyes of others. See, a flesh addict appears pious, and spirituality is a goal. In fact, I, their, their identity is in their spirituality, you know, it's interesting that later on in 2 Corinthians, um, we're going to come to a period where Paul talks about this spiritual experience he had when he went to the third heaven. But Paul's going to introduce this spiritual experience this way. He's going to say, you know, I, I know a man once. Paul has this incredible experience that he could lay out at any time to silence the false, to, to silence the false teachers that would give him immediately spiritual credibility in any small group that he was sitting with, and yet he introduces it this way. Yeah, I I know a man who once had this experience. In other words, he's so reluctant to gain recognition that he remains anonymous. I mean, you know you're getting the whole weakness motif when you're more concerned that people are going to think too much of you than too little of you. So part of being a flesh addict is is just, you know, in the ways that we tend to boast. And then another part of the flesh addict, and again, all of this is under the heading of, of, of do we value heart more than appearance, or do we value appearance more? The second way that we can see this flesh addict tendency is in how we diagnose the heart. Because flesh addicts, are always justifying behavior or seeking to define the reason they do what they do in terms outside of the heart. Amoral is a way that it can be described. So they have this episode with their spouse where they're just ranting and raving and angry. But then when they think about it, they think, I wasn't angry. I'm not angry. I'm not an angry person. That's not really me. See, I'm just moody. I get a little touchy. I get, you know, irritated, sometimes frustrated. Yeah, I can be tense. I can be a little edgy at times. I can be annoyed. Sometimes I'm grumpy. I can be picky. I can be testy. No. The gospel says no. You can be angry. But there's good news. See, Jesus died for angry people. Listen, you're not just keeping it real with your spouse. When you're getting angry like that, you're a flesh addict. You know, if it feels like we're cutting it a little close today, remember the goal of the message is that we might operate on ourselves. And when I share these things, I want you to know it it, just, it affects me the same way because I am I am flesh addict exhibit A. I mean, I had to confess my anger just two days ago to my daughter. And, and one of the things that's so encouraging to me about the gospel is that it reminds me, even as I struggle at times with anger, that Jesus died for my anger, even as a believer. That, that, that the gospel is big enough to... To accomplish, to accomplish forgiveness for sins that I commit even after I become a Christian. You say, Dave, what are we, the word police? What are we worrying about, individual words? Now, no, that's not where I'm at. But what we have to understand is that if you're anything like me, flesh addicts can use words not merely to describe feelings, but to define their problem. And there's a big difference for me to say, you know, I can feel like I'm a little frustrated versus the reason I am this way is because I'm frustrated. And and what I'm trying to say here is that Christ didn't get stapled to a tree because we get a little grumpy. Christ died for our sins because we get wrathful and angry and we rage in our hearts and because we sin. Our hearts are active, and then we explain it away and justify it as if it is completely understandable. And the more skillful we become at knowing the heart, the deeper we value the reason that Jesus died for our sins. It becomes even more meaningful to us, which is part of why we must value heart more than appearance. So that's the second point. That's the second one, the inward one. And finally, the outward question. The outward question is, are you controlled more by gospel love than self-love? Are you controlled more by gospel love than self-love? So Paul wasn't merely motivated by the fear of the Lord. But according to verse 14, there was something else that motivated him. There was something else that controlled him as well. And this is the way he said it in verse 14. For for the love of Christ controls me. Why did Paul take the gospel to the nations and suffer in doing it? Why did he shed blood as he went? Why did he endure week after week the foolishness of the Corinthians? Because this man was captivated by something glorious, something that was a game changer, something that changed absolutely everything, something that made him willing to bear insult, to to experience betrayal, to experience persecution, something that controlled him, something he describes as the love of God. And this is the essence of it in verse 14. He says, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. John said it the following way. He said, by this we know love, that Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. And so Paul goes on this, you know, he he turns the corner a little bit. And he starts talking about the love of God for, for all. And by the way, just a quick thought on Paul's use of all. He uses it several times in verse 14 and 15. In 2 Corinthians, and in this passage in particular, all refers to all believers. Remember, Paul was writing the book of 2 Corinthians, or the letter of 2 Corinthians, to Christians, to believers. So all refers to all of those who are new creations. If if all meant all people everywhere, then there would be no need for the fear of the Lord that he describes earlier because, hey, everybody's saved, right? The fear of the Lord would make no sense. See, typically when Paul uses the word all, he's talking about all without distinction not all without exception. Let me explain to you what I mean. He's talking about all without distinction, which means there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. The gospel is available to all. It's all without distinction. Not all without exception, meaning that that God, it will save everyone. So the point that Paul's trying to make here is that when gospel love controls the church, it bears a certain kind of fruit in the church. It bears the fruit of love in the church. So how do we know if we're being controlled more by gospel love than self-love? Well, let's look at what Paul says. He says first, I, I seem to see Christ more clearly. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. He sees Christ no longer through the flesh. He sees Christ clearly. Paul says, I once regarded him according to the flesh. In other words, there was a time that Paul believed differently. There was a time when Paul persecuted the church, where Paul sought to destroy Christians, where Paul saw himself as approved by God on the basis of his pedigree, on the basis of his works of the law. But then on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus Christ and Christ flipped him. Christ flipped him upside down. See, if you want to understand Paul's patience with the Corinthians, if you want to understand why he stays despite the betrayal he's experienced, despite the injuries that they inflict, it's because the love of Christ. If you want to comprehend why Paul is so long-suffering with the Corinthians, why he doesn't retaliate with words, why he doesn't seek to punish them emotionally, Why, when he's hurt, he doesn't run off and spread rumors and gossip about the Corinthians. It's because he is under the control of an entirely new motivation that he describes as the love of Christ. And he tells them in another letter that he defines what love is. He says love is patient. Love is kind. Love suffers wrong. Love endures all. And that's a really important point for you and for me as we stand on the threshold of an entirely new year. Because there's something about the way that God organizes our life where he just fixes Corinthians in the life of every believer. You know, it might be a kid that you have that just seems exceedingly foolish in this season. It might be a friend that's hurt you dearly. It might be a, a prodigal spouse or a sibling that you've been praying for for a long time where God, God reaches down and he whispers to us in the beginning of a brand new year and he says, love is patient. By the way, we don't need patience for those who treat us well. That's not a problem. Love being patience assumes that it's somebody in our life that requires patience. Love is kind. Love is gentle. See, it, it, the reason why those words are being spoken and love is being defined is because God assumes that there are people in our life, lives, to whom and for whom we must apply the truth of that passage. Because we don't need kindness and forbearance for those who are returning our investment, for those who are treating us patiently and kindly and lovingly, for those that are giving back, in a sense, the love that we give to them. God says, no, there's a whole different kind of love that I've displayed towards you that I want you to now turn and pass along. Because gospel love does not need equality, if you know what I mean. In other words, gospel love doesn't walk around in the relationships of our life carrying a ruler, calculating how much they've given versus how much you've given. See, what happens to the gospel when it fills our heart is it begins to expand our heart and make our heart bigger for God and bigger for people. And it does that because we see Christ clearly. Clearly. And when we see Christ clearly, we see the love that he displayed for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't like we cleaned our act up, we became more attractive to God, and then he responded by saying, okay, you've taken the right steps, I'll receive you now. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, And there's the whole Romans 2 thing. It's his kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. When we're unrepented, God shows his kindness. See, that's what we see when we look at the love of God in Christ. We see Christ clearly and then the Spirit of God comes and whispers into our ear, pass it along. Pass it along to somebody else. But it's not just that. It's that It's not just seeing Christ clearly. We're talking about how we know if we're being controlled by gospel love. It's not just seeing Christ clearly, but it's also dying to self daily. Look at verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live, listen to this, for themselves. They they live for him who for their sake died and was raised. Because the gospel frees us from the tyranny of self. The gospel removes us from being the center of our own universe and makes room in our heart because it's been expanded by the love of God, makes room in our heart for the care and the interests of other people. But here's the mind-blowing thing about the love of God, and we really have to understand this to really be able to comprehend the passage. It is that love comes through death. Love, biblical love. God's love, gospel love, comes through death. And he died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves but for him. You know, one of the most provocative and difficult truths of the gospel is wrapping our brain around the reality that it fixes death at the core of love. It fixes death. At the core of love. That love means death. It's what Jesus meant in Luke chapter 9 when he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and then inserts this word, daily, and follow me. Pick up his cross daily. Because love means death. Love means dying to something. Dying to what we want. Dying to how we prefer things to be. Dying at times to how we feel. Dying to our pride. You know, it's death when we make a mistake and our soul screams that we should justify it, but we humble ourselves and we apologize. That's death. It's death when we are overlooked by a friend and our heart lobbies to withdraw from them, but we overlook it out of love. It's death when we serve repeatedly and nobody thanks us. We're constantly overlooked for it. We're waiting to be thanked and yet still we serve. That's death. It's death when we're grieving some some great loss. And maybe that's where you are this morning. You're grieving some great loss. And everything in your heart says, stay in bed and just... Just grieve. Just feel sorry for yourself. Just pity yourself today. And yet you whisper a prayer to God and you exercise the courage to get out of bed for yet another day. That's death, but it's really love. We're picking up our cross daily. And it may feel like cutting. It may feel like we're being cut this morning. But you know that's that is the point. We were invited into surgery this morning. You know, when Dr. Cain did surgery, all he had was anesthesia. We have the gospel, but but the gospel doesn't doesn't numb us from the pain. In fact, the gospel allows us to feel the pain. The gospel allows us to feel the pain that we might truly enjoy the solution, that we might truly understand the significance of the solution, and yet the gospel still empowers us to love despite the pain. It's how we know that he died for us. It's how we know that we are a new creation because the old way that we used to deal with things has passed away. Behold, new things have come. Let's pray.